Well, good evening, Moody Church. What a joy to be able to be here with you for this Sunday night service. As Michael just said, we are starting a new series, and I am just so glad to have the privilege of being able to look at the Word with you. Walter Theodore Rollins was born September 7, 1930 in Harlem. He was clearly musically gifted from an early age. He played the piano incessantly, and at about age six, he started campaigning with his mother to get her to buy him a saxophone, which, after about a year, she eventually did. Well, he took to it immediately, locking himself in his room, teaching himself how to play, really only leaving uh, so his mother could drag him out to feed him so you know, he wouldn't die. And by the time he was in high school, he was already playing with some of the biggest names in jazz on 52nd Street. Well, by the summer of 1959, he had released at least a dozen critically acclaimed and commercially successful albums. He had toured Europe, he'd been across the country, he played Carnegie Hall, he'd innovated new directions in jazz music that would have a lasting impact to this day. And by any metric, Sonny Rollins was doing everything a jazz musician was supposed to do. He had it all. He was successful. He was talented. But as he played night after night, he began to feel limited. He, he began to butt up against the edge of what he felt he could do. It wasn't that he lacked skill, but he felt the music just driving him to do things that he couldn't quite pull off. So counter to all precedent and conventional wisdom, Rollins left the music scene and he began walking every single night from his apartment on the Lower East Side to the Williamsburg Bridge to practice next to the train tracks for 15 or 16 hours a day sometimes. And he did this for more than two years before he eventually returned back to public performance. Well, Rollins didn't do this because he lacked success, because he wasn't good, because he wasn't doing the things that he should have been doing. He did this because he was driven by something inside. His love for the music forced him to be better, to, to do things that nobody else was, was doing. Well, today, Sonny Rollins is 89 years old and is widely regarded as one of the greatest improvisers of any genre to ever have lived. And he has more longevity in music and more success than almost anybody else in any other genre. And this has all been credited to his love for music. And it, it kind of begs the question, makes us wonder, like, where would our lives be if we had more passion, if we were more driven? Uh, more to the point, what does our church look like when we are as passionate about the glory of God as Sonny Rollins is about the saxophone? Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at how we might make that happen and how God might intend for us to make that happen by looking at two of the churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, before we look at the text, let's talk just for a minute about the context so we kind of know what we're wading into. The context of Revelation is a bit different from our own, but there are some major similarities, actually. Many scholars believe it was written about 90 AD under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Uh, some disagreement on dating, but you know, some scholars place it earlier. Not important. But the big similarity to our time is John, the apostle who's writing this, is writing it from quarantine. Uh, he has been quarantined on the island of Patmos, not because of disease, not because of uh, any order from the government, but because he refused to stop spreading the gospel. 
So John, who's the author also of the Gospel of John, of the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is sheltering in place in his old age on Patmos, and he's given a prophetic vision from Jesus himself that he's going to write down for the encouragement of the believers about to undergo some pretty intense persecution. Now, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, if you're, you're new to it, you may know Revelation is the book that has all the spooky end time stuff that uh, gets used in horror movies and things. And yes, there is some interesting imagery in the book. It, it's written in a genre called apocalyptic literature that's r- just filled with symbolism. But this book is written as an encouragement to believers. And friends, this is indeed an encouraging book. Ultimately, it is all about Jesus coming back to right every wrong, to restore the world to the way it should be, to make all things new. Well, the book of Revelation is actually a letter. It's a circular letter written to the seven churches that are in this section that we're looking at. And it's intended to be read aloud, start to finish by the pastor in each church. And what we're going to see as we look at a couple of these cities is, well, there's, there's similarities and there's differences. There's different gifts, there's different flaws, there's different abilities in each one, different things that are commended, different things that are condemned. And this is just like the body of Christ here or in any other church or in any other region. The body of Christ is made up of different parts, some more mature than others, different gifts present in all, but the same Lord, same love, same region, same coming persecution united them all together. And each church and later readers are intended to learn from the words that Christ gives to these churches. So Revelation chapter 1 opens with John, as we said, in quarantine on Patmos, being given a vision of Christ in glory, so intense that he has to use some wild imagery to describe it. And John is told to write what he sees in the vision to follow and send it to the seven churches. Christ is seen holding seven stars in his hand, which represent the angels of the churches, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. And he's walking among seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches that he's writing to. Now, he holds these angels, and the definition of that, the meaning of that that I lean towards is that pastors at each church. But it's a disputed point. If you disagree, by all means, feel free to email Bill Birchie. He would love to hear from you, okay? Uh, it's very okay to disagree, okay? There's no consensus here. But This is an amazing symbol to start off this passage with because this is showing us that the leaders of the church are in Christ's hand, that he is holding them just as he's holding us in his hand. And as persecution comes, no matter what comes, we are to remember that Christ holds us in his hand and nothing happens to us apart from his allowing it. And the image of Christ walking among the lampstands, it's him walking in and among the churches. He's saying, I'm not distant. I'm not far from you. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. I am there. So I'm holding you. I'm protecting you. I am with you. And this is very important to bear in mind as you read the rest of the letter of Revelation. We won't get to it all tonight, but hey, if you want to pick it up once we're done here, that would be awesome. Okay, just remember, it's encouraging. Christ is with you. So both the city of Ephesus 
and the city of Chicago need to remember this point. In our passage today, we're reading about the letter to Ephesus, and it starts a new section of this letter of Revelation, but it flows right out of the first chapter. So let's open up our Bibles or our apps, uh, whatever you're using, and uh, let's read Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So some basic questions right off the bat. I mean, who were the Ephesians? Well, Ephesus is a major metropolitan port city. Uh, it's known to many of you Bible fans from Acts and Paul's letters. Uh, it's the same place. Uh, and, and there's a lot of comments here given at them in a short span. What did they do right? There's 11 comments about their behavior, and 10 of those are positive. Hey, 10 out of 11 is pretty good. Like, that's pretty good. I mean, how many of us really get 10 out of 11 on a daily basis? These guys are doing well, okay? Uh, The positives can be kind of broken into three categories. We've got work and service, we have patient endurance, and we have my favorite, discernment and doctrine, all right? Now, the church here in Ephesus makes me think of Moody. I mean, you can call me egotistical. You can, you can say I'm deluded. I see this list of things they're doing right, and I think of the Moody Church here in downtown Chicago. So many of these apply here. We have so many super bright, theologically deep saints eager to serve their church and their community. We have saints here who are patiently enduring all manner of suffering, not just in quarantine, but all manner of suffering because they know Christ is with them. And look, I dare you to try and sneak some bad doctrine in here, all right? If one night Michael Best decides to preach a heresy, okay, not only will he get an email about it, but then Bill Burchie's going to get an email and our new pastor, Philip Miller, and the entire elder board, they're going to get flooded with emails because you people wouldn't allow it. Okay, this is an amazing blessing. This is something to be thankful for, to be proud of even. But for many of us here, just like at Ephesus, this warning also can apply. So what's the problem? What's the warning? Well, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. What what love is he talking about? There's a lot of of different loves possible, right? Well, I think the at-first comment gives us a pretty good idea of where we should at least be looking. I think the the love of Christ that drives us to recognize that we need him as a savior, that we need to confess him as Lord, that love that fills our hearts when we first realize that how just holy and awesome God is and how utterly sinful and broken we are apart from him. And this love that we have for God in this moment 
Well, this is a big love, right? This, this isn't even possible to just limit to God because once that vertical piece happens, all of a sudden, we start overflowing with that love and we start looking horizontally. We start looking out at those around us with love that we didn't have before. This is not a small love. This is supposed to be an all-consuming love. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 uh, says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is Moses writing about the law and the love of God and telling God's chosen people that this is not a thing to take for granted. And our love that we're supposed to have at first, that's supposed to be with us, is to be treated the exact same way. It should be the center of our lives. Well, right about now, some of you may be asking a fairly obvious question. How is this lack of love the problem for a church with those good works. I mean, they had service, they had patient endurance, they had solid doctrine, right? This was not one of those churches that the apostles had to write to, to say, watch out, false teachers are coming in and you dummies might fall prey to that. Like, no, these guys are being commended for kicking those false teachers out. The problem is they lacked love. And, I mean, is it even possible to do good works like this without the love of Christ? Doesn't James tell us that faith without works is dead? And doesn't this list of their good works mean that they had to have had a vibrant and living faith? Well, let's stop and think about it for a second. I mean, how many secular organizations are out there that are doing good to others? How many atheists are excellent neighbors who take care of their lawns and treat other people well. Okay? We should never allow ourselves to confuse church activity, busyness, service with the activity of the Holy Spirit. And that's not to say that they're not ever the same. Far from it, right? You can't be a Christian without this love animating you, and you can't do these good works to please God without this love animating you. But you can definitely start a church with love. And over time, you can, you or somebody else, we can all get ground down by life, by activity, by busyness. Hard times can grind us down, but, but friends, easy times can grind us down just as easily, all right? Look, I'm perfectly capable of talking at you for 30 minutes, stopping at the grocery store on my way home and getting food for a neighbor who's shut inside their house, go home and do something for my kids and never give a thought to Jesus while I do it. Now, I pray that that never happens. We should all be praying that that never happens. But it's important to realize that we can't take the love of God for granted. And we can't take our affection for God for granted. So one way that this lack of love, this growing cold, can happen super easily is that we get so caught up in doing the good works we were doing that were originally fueled by that love that we just get focused on the tasks 
and forget that initial driving love. Losing love can be an issue for anyone who's been a Christian for more than about five minutes. How quickly we forget uh, Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And it's not that any of our works are bad, far from it, right? They're being commended for their good works. The issue seems to be that they've been so busy doing the good works that they haven't taken that alone time with their God. Maybe their prayers have become very functional. Maybe their prayers have become, well, I need your help to get through this. I need this thing. I need this. Do this for me. And less just adoration for their creator. Kind of reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha, uh, the two sisters of Lazarus who, Lazarus, who were good friends with Jesus. And uh, Luke 10, beginning in verse 38, kind of relays this story where the sisters invite Jesus into their home, and you know he comes in and, and they're hanging out. Jesus is speaking. Uh, maybe he was teaching, but I think it's just as likely that he's relaxing. He's hanging out with his friends. And Martha is running around getting the house ready. She's preparing food. She's cleaning. She's picking up those toys that the kids left that, I don't want anybody to see that and judge me. I have kids, you know. And, and she sees Mary, her sister, just hanging out with Jesus. And, and she gets miffed and she goes and Let's be honest, we can all relate to that, okay? If your spouse, your sibling, whomever is supposed to be helping you or you think they're supposed to be helping you and they're not, you're going to get miffed. And Martha goes to Jesus and she says, you know, can you do something about this? And he says, look, Mary has chosen the better portion. Mary is doing what she ought to be doing. It's not that our houses need to be perfect. It's that we need Jesus. We need to be with him, right? It's important to remember that we were created for fellowship with God. Mary is doing what she was designed to do. And like Martha, the Ephesians seem to have become caught up in the important work of the church and forgotten to take time to reflect on their love of Christ and each other. John points out over and over again, I mean, he's known as the apostle of love, uh, in 1 John, that we will be known as Christ's disciples by our love for God and for one another. We're not known to be Christians by how many programs we have. We're not known to be Christians by how many people are watching our live stream. We're certainly not known to be Christians based on the comments we leave on Facebook underneath a friend's uh, political posts. Our activity is not a guarantee of our spiritual health. One of the reasons I love this particular letter, and I do love this whole section of this book, but I love this particular letter because it seems so targeted at mature believers. And yes, mature believers, even pastors, are not immune to their love growing cold. We can all and likely will all go through seasons of life where we can find that, that love growing a little distant, where we can, we can drift this is a good reminder to not just now when you're stuck at home, but, but all the time, be praying for each other. Be praying for the people you see at church. Be praying for your small group, and especially be praying for your pastors. Those who work tirelessly for your benefit and edification need love and prayer just as much as anybody else does. 
Everyone at one time or another can find themselves planning lessons, serving people, serving their community, offering hospitality to their neighbors, and they turn around and realize it's become a job to do rather than the natural outgrowth of their view of Christ. So back to the text here. Christ doesn't just point out the issue. He tells them that there are consequences for continuing on without their first love. There's a threat here. And I don't think that this is worded as the kind of threat that many of you may use with your kids. Like the, if you continue to hit me with the vacuum cleaner, I'm locking it away and you don't get to play with it anymore. Which is actually a threat that I made and followed through on with my two and a half year old last week. This is more of a natural consequence threat of allowing the love to remain cold. More of a, if you stick those paper clips in the electric socket, electricity will pass through your body, blow you across the room, and end you. Okay? Which is a threat I also made to that same two and a half year old. Fortu- he's okay. He's okay. Everybody's all right. Uh, his whole life is one big sermon illustration. So the threat here is removing their lampstand, removing their symbol of being a church. Well, what does that look like? I, I don't think that he means that they've got until Tuesday to shape up or the fireball's coming at Wednesday, 12.01 a.m., okay? That's not the kind of thing I believe is happening here. There are plenty of church buildings and plenty of congregations that still meet that no longer qualify as real gospel-believing, living churches. Maybe you visited one before. The removal of the lampstand isn't likely the destruction of the building, but In their context, I think it's much more about them losing the support to stand up under pressure. There's coming persecution and a pressure to renounce their confession of faith, to say, no, 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 it's cool, I'm not a Christian anymore, don't feed me to any lions, all right? The loss of their identity in Christ, all right? The loss of their witness to the world because they're openly renouncing it. Well, we're not facing that. What about our context? We're, nobody is, at the moment, threatening to feed any of us to lions, at least not in this country. Well, I think it's becoming like any number of more theologically liberal churches, which preach shallow tips on how to be a nice person and never mention the name of Jesus Christ. It's becoming the kind of place that continues to have great entertaining programs, but lacks the power of the gospel to save people in the only way that really matters. It's becoming a busy and active congregation that the neighbors don't mind because, man, they do some nice stuff around the community and they never confront that community with their sin and need for Jesus Christ for salvation. One commentator put it this way, neither history nor appropriate activity is sufficient to demand the continued blessings of God. Rather, the only motivation must be love for Christ. Make no mistake, this is a very real possibility for Ephesus, for Moody Church, for every church across the world apart from Christ's sustaining power. Okay, so how is Ephesus and how is Moody and how is anybody watching this? How are we supposed to combat this? Well, John, being a great evangelical preacher, gives us three steps, all right? Step number one, remember, all right? Go back to the Old Testament and see how God desired his people to rehearse the great deeds that he did. The character of God was revealed in his steadfast mercy towards rebellious sinners. And God knew that without reminders, his people were likely to forget that mercy and to forget who he was and what he had done. Think about when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, uh, 
God gives them the command to take the Passover every year so that year after year after year, they remember their God getting them out of the house of slavery and delivering them to the promised land. Or in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites cross the Jordan River, God tells them through Joshua to take 12 stones from the middle of the river to set up a monument so that when their kids are playing over there, they say, well, what's that big pile of rocks about? And it gives the parents an opportunity to say, well, this is when God did mightily for us. Christ himself instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, It's a reminder that every time we are assembled and partake of the elements, we are proclaiming his death, burial, and resurrection to each other, to those around us. It is a constant reminder. We need to remember what God has done for us personally, as well as for the people of God corporately in Jesus Christ on the cross. And remember that if you're a believer, God saw you, gross, sinful, actively in rebellion, and he loved you anyway. Remember that before you were ever a busy volunteer in ministry, God loved you anyway. And remember that before you were ever even born, had done anything good or bad, he chose you and loved you anyway. He came to earth in human flesh in the person of Christ Jesus to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that your sins deserved, and to give you the unshakable promise of an eternity with him. And we must remember this and not take it for granted. Remember that your deeds haven't changed the fact that it was God's will to save you when you had no good works to boast of. So we need to remember. And we also, in remembering, then need to repent. Right? Our second step is that he gives us is to repent. The church at Ephesus had a ton of good works, but no amount of good works, sermons preached, neighbors fed, hours put in at the nursery, will absolve us uh, from failing to place Christ first in our hearts and affections. Right? It's not a math equation. Good deeds don't cancel out bad. And you can have good deeds that are done sinfully, right? I know I have. You can look at the doctrine you've defended because it just feels so good to be right. Okay? You can think of all the times you've laughed at a prosperity gospel preacher because you're just so much holier than they are. All right? The smarter you are, the better grasp of scripture or doctrine, the more Bible you have memorized, beware lest you be like the Ephesians, okay? And, and lose that love that you had at first. And I am definitely preaching to myself here. This is a message for Justin that I need to hear constantly. No one is immune to the need to repent when we realize that we've been using the Bible or good works as a tool to fuel our, our pride and our self-worth. Uh, Gavin Ortland says it this way, theological zeal must be subjected to the test of love. Not all zeal is from God. Even when the error we oppose is a deadly heresy, our aim must be to heal, not to disgrace. If you condemn heretics, prosperity gospel preachers, your jerk co-workers, bad neighbors, or anybody else without praying for their salvation and recognizing that there but by the grace of God go you, this is a great moment to repent and return to the love you had at first. John's third step here, return. Do the good works you did at first. 
Well, I mean, they were already doing a bunch of good works, right? Like, clearly, Christ through John did not mean that, oh, they just forgot this one thing that they needed to add to the list. No, it's bigger than that, right? The works they did at first, they needed all of their works they were already doing to be done differently, to be done fueled by the love that they had at first. The works themselves were not the problem. It was the manner in which they were done. The worship wasn't the problem. It was that worship wasn't being done from the heart. Again, as Hosea said, it's steadfast love. It's not sacrifice. It's the knowledge of God, not the burnt offerings that God valued. Our first work is one of love and vision. Because when we, when we see God for, for who he is, who he really is, when we even begin to grasp the very edges of his attributes, we have no choice but to be overwhelmed with that love, that, that love that just, blam, huge blast of vertical love that in turn has to spill out horizontally every which way to those around us. It becomes that visible thing that we can see, that others can see in us. And at some point in their past, all believers had some measure of this experience. At some point, if you are a follower of Christ, you saw God as he is, at least a little bit, and you saw yourself as you are. And that resulted in this emotional thing that we're talking about here. And this changes everything in our lives when we get this back, when we return to that love we had at first. We're, we're reinvigorated. We walk differently. We shop for groceries differently. We interact with people who disagree with us about quarantine and politics differently. We all face this problem from time to time that we need to remember, repent, and return from. It's not too late for you right now. And look, if this is all foreign to you, if you look at your life and you say that, I don't remember having this experience. I, I was raised in the church. I'm, just, I'm a church guy. It's what we do. Okay? Look, this is a great advantage of doing church at home. If you're by yourself, man, you can get on your living room floor right now and just pray that God give you this vision, that God gives you this thing we're talking about here. Or if you're in a crowded house, ton of kids, guess what? You're going to have to go to the bathroom at some point. Just excuse yourself. Get off in a private area and get with your God. This is too important not to renew this love. All right? So the seven verses that make up this message from Jesus conclude with verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, he who has an ear to hear. He's just saying, don't let the words of this encouragement and warning pass by unheeded. Recognize your opportunity now. If your love has grown cold, repent. Return to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Remember that God made you for love. God is love. God made you for fellowship with himself. It wasn't because he was lonely, okay? God has existed for all eternity as the three persons of the Trinity in perpetual love and joy. It's not because he needed man for anything, but it's because God is love and is so overwhelming with that love that we're talking about that he wanted to create more beings just to love on. Okay? That's your purpose. That's what you were made for. Man was created to love God, to be loved by God, to eat of the tree of life, and to enter into perpetual Sabbath rest with God. The promise here for the Ephesians is a promise here for you. 
Return to the love you were designed for at first, and you will be given the glorious rest you were meant for. If you'll bow with me in prayer. Great, merciful God of love, we, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here, to, to have your word, to have you indwelling with us, to, to give us love, to, to let us show love to each other, that we, can, that we can be your people. Lord, we ask that you would renew us when we get cold, that you would stoke that, that fire, that passion for you and for your glory, that you would allow us to serve you not out of obligation and, and not for our own good and not for our own benefit, although it would be to our benefit, but Lord, let us serve you because we love you and because we want to serve you and we would do anything for you. Lord, let us be your people. Renew us this week. Forgive us when we fall. Give us the strength to do better and let us be a living witness to the world around us and uh, be tools for gospel renewal. And all these things we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.